Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, so here we go. In 2 Samuel 5, okay, catch me up. What's happened? What happened in 4? David has now come into the land of Judah, right? Remember that? Okay, so the tribe of Judah has anointed David king. Uh, Remember uh, when Saul and his sons died, who took over? Okay, Abner was the leader, but he went and found Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth became the king of the rest of Israel. And so we have this uh, pretty good dividing line between the area of Judah and Benjamin and, and the rest of Israel. And so then we have this situation, remember, where we talked about um, um, we had the issue of when Abner, the whole, remember the whole scandal scene and the whole Olivia Pope cover-up? Do you remember we went o- over all of that? And so at the end of the day, right, Abner was going to come over and give all of his support to David but that backfired because who killed him? I just want to be reminded of the story. Joab, okay, so Joab, who is the commander of David's army, killed Abner, who was the commander of Saul's or Ishbosheth's. And that put David in a really big pickle because the nation was ready to unite and then this happened. And so what did he do? Do you remember? How did the cover up sound? You remember? Anybody here with me last week? Okay, well, think about it. David finally realizes, hey, it was a done deal. The papers were signed. I mean, they had the amazing pens and they were signing the treaty. And Abner is leaving and Joab comes in and sabotages it, calls him back, says, hey, how you doing? Uh, You know, puts a knife in his gut, kills him. Now I'm talking this nation could explode over this event. So David said, what? Let me tell you people, you better rip your clothes and put on some ash because we're about to have a national funeral like you have never seen. We are going to convince the nation of Israel that, which I actually didn't have anything to do with it, but we're going to convince them that I didn't because we need this nation to unify and you have put us in deep trouble. And so they go and they rip their clothes and they mourn and they have a whole funeral for Abner. And David even writes a lament. Do you remember that? Well, remember how I told you in politics, whoever wins is the one who controlled the narrative? Okay. What is the narrative? What is he trying to get Israel to buy as to what happened? Yeah, he just died in the street. That's right. I mean, basically, he's saying, listen, he went out and served five tours in Iraq and just died in a street brawl. I mean, you just can't believe it. And, and so he painted that picture, and it said the people believed him because the people loved David. And so we have that situation. Then we see because a man put Ishbosheth on the throne, how is he feeling when that man is killed? Not good. He's shaky. And if he's shaky, the whole rest of the nation knows. And so remember the two scoundrels? They come in while he's sleeping and taking a nap, and they kill him, they cut off his head, and they take it to David. Was he happy? 
No, he was not because David is very good at seeing the little foxes that try to get in, the little dangerous spies that try to get into his kingdom. And he is setting a precedent that no, we don't when we're unhappy about leadership. I'm not setting a precedent that we kill them while they're napping and cut off their head and bring it to the next king. No, we're not doing that. And why do you people, haven't you heard? I'm, I wasn't an enemy of Saul and I'm still not the enemy of the family of Saul. And so he executed them. Okay, so now we're in chapter five. This is where we are. It says this. <coughs> Then all the tribe of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone, we are your bone and flesh. Okay, one attitude I want you to, I want you to pay attention. Do you remember when they first asked for a king? It was really, they first asked Samuel for a king. They really had an attitude of what? Entitlement, kind of disrespect. A lack of trust. We want a king like all the other nations. It seems pretty much like they were rebelling against God. But notice the tone here, because I don't feel that tone going on here, because they are saying, listen, we now want you to be our king. Number one reason, we are your flesh and blood. Notice they did not say you are our flesh and blood. They are recognizing him and they are coming and they are submitting to him as their king. And basically what they are saying to the nation is it is time to unite. We are all one family. We all come from Jacob. We all come from Israel. We are brethren and this is time. So we are choosing you because the bottom line is you are our brother. The second thing they want to acknowledge, it says in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought and brought us in Israel. Is that what that said? Yeah. Let us out and brought in Israel. You led us out and you brought us in. So they're not choosing someone with an unknown commodity. Has he proven himself? Has David proven himself as a leader, as a warrior? Yes. They know exactly what he can do. He has proven his leadership. So this is not a shot in the dark. Matter of fact, they know more now about what David can do than they ever knew what Saul could do. Remember, when they, when they elected him, he was hiding in the baggage. Do you remember that? And so here they're saying, okay, no, it is time to unify because we are all brethren and we know for a fact what you are capable of. We know that you're a leader. And then they go on to say, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. And what are they saying? And we know that God has chosen you. It is known. Do you understand that? Listen, he was anointed. Uh, Saul knew. Did he not? Didn't Saul say on several occasions, I now know that you will be the next king of Israel? Who else knew? Saul. Abigail knew. Do you remember that whole scene? She talked him off the ledge. He was about to go AWOL. I mean, really, Samuel had died. He was upset about it. And then you have stupid Nabal, the fool, who insulted him. And David was about to go wipe them completely out and enter a smart, calm woman who talked him off the ledge. But what did she say? I know that you're going to be the next king of Israel. So don't do this. 
you don't want this on your record. You need to calm yourself down. You need to cool your jets. But she knew. So not only did Saul know, Abigail knew. What about Jonathan? Jonathan fully knew. He had already said, you will be king. And when you are, I will be right by your side. That's what he said. So not only that, you know who else knew? The Philistines. The Philistines knew. 1 Samuel 21, 11, if you want to write it down, look it up later. When he was there, uh, remember when he had to act crazy to save his life? They said, wait a minute, David is in town. Isn't this the king in Israel? And he actually wasn't the king at the time, but did they respect him as such? Yes. So this was a known deal. And so now they've come to him. The nation is united. And they have said to David, it's time. It is time to be united. We are all one family. We are going to acknowledge the leader that you have been. We want to recognize you. And bottom line, you are God's choice. And we are behind you. And I want you to notice in verse, well, in that verse, in verse 2, do you see how it says, and you shall be prince over Israel? That is a different word than king, okay? King is malek, prince is different. That is the proper orientation under God because God is the king and the earthly king was more like a prince. And so they say it correctly. In verse three, it says, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. Okay, it then says at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. In verse six, it goes on to say, so he's now anointed. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. You're like, why do I even care about that? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's important. Okay, so right now, David is going to go to a certain place owned by the Jebusites. That is Jerusalem. It is the city of Jerusalem. You also see it as Jebus, J-E-B-U-S, okay, from Jebusites, but it's also the city of Jerusalem. And so he is going to, we're going to hear about him coming in and taking this city of Jerusalem, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but I want you to see who these Jebusites are and why they are still there. Okay, so if, if you don't want to follow me, we're going to go on a journey through the Bible. I'm going to give you references so that you can follow who are these Jebusites. So if you just want to make a list later on, you can go back and literally follow them through the Old Testament. All right, starting in Genesis 15, and I believe it's like verse, just put 18. It's around 18. I'm sorry, I have the message in front of me and it doesn't give me the verses correctly. It says this. Now, what's Genesis 15? It's when God is making the covenant with Abraham. I've taught you that several times. When he, Abraham is like, how do I know I'm going to have a son? How do I know for sure I'm going to be a great nation? And God says, go get the sacrifices, cut them in pieces, put them opposite of each other. God comes down in this form of a smoking fire pot and he makes a covenant with Abraham. This is what he is saying. This is the scene. It says, I'm giving this land to your children from the Nile River in Egypt to the river Euphrates in Assyria. 
the country of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So the Jebusites were originally in the land of Israel, and often all of these ites, even the mosquito bites, are called Canaanites in general because they're in the land of Canaan. But here we have them all designated. Okay, next, Exodus 3.8. It was 21, thank you. Genesis 15.21, that is. Now Exodus 3.8. Okay, God is calling Moses at this time. And he says, I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain. By the way, how many... How long has it been since Abraham? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. How many years of bondage? Because this is the end. He's calling Moses. So around 400 years. So this is quite some time. And I want you to know they're still in the land. Okay, so it says this. I know all about their pain. And now I have come down to help them. Pay them to pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush, flowing with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They are still there. Numbers 13:29. The scouts are in the land. So if you know your narrative, what has happened? They've gotten married, the Ten Commandments, Right? God has given the instructions for the tabernacle. And now he says, go get your land. And under Moses, Moses takes them to the edge and they go to a place called Kadesh Barnea and they send out 12 spies. Okay, this is part of their report. So it says this, we went into the land to which you sent us. And oh, don't you love the message? And oh, it does flow with milk and honey. Just look at this fruit. The only thing is that the people who live there are fierce their cities are huge and well fortified, one of them being Jebus, let me just tell you. Worse yet, we saw defendants of the giant Anak. Amalekites are spread out in the Negev. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites hold the hill country. Okay, so now we have a little bit more information. They're in the land of Israel. They have been there the entire time, and we know that they're in the hill country of Israel. Okay, go to Deuteronomy 7.1. What's Deuteronomy? Y'all hate it when I ask y'all questions. You're like, I wish you wouldn't ask me any questions. Deuteronomy is what we call the second law. Okay, why is it? Is it a different law? It's the second time the law has been given. Why? Because you are so smart. Because it is a new generation. God is a gentleman. He doesn't force anyone to have a relationship with him. So when he said to the first generation, will you love me and only me? Will you get rid of all your old boyfriend's pictures, no images, no idols, and don't try to put me in one? Honor my name. Does that sound familiar? When they established the covenant of the law, they've now all died out. The other ones were young. They have to decide for themselves. So now, once again, after 39 more years of wondering, now they have been brought to the edge of their inheritance. And Moses goes through the whole law again. 
because now this young generation has grown up and they need to choose for themselves. And basically he says, will you marry me? God says, will you marry me? And they say what? Yes. So when he's doing that in Deuteronomy, it says, when God, your God brings you into the country that you are about to enter and take over, he will clear out the superpowers that were there before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Remember what it says at the beginning. Who will clear them out? God will clear them out. Okay? Go to Joshua 3.10. Then Joshua addressed the people of Israel. Attention. Listen to what God, your God, has to say. This is how you'll know that God is alive among you. He will completely dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Once again, now Joshua is saying, stay faithful because God will get rid of these people. Joshua 9, all the kings west of the Jordan in the hills and foothills and along the Mediterranean seacoast north towards Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Girgashites, and Jebusites got the news and they came together in a coalition to fight against Joshua and Israel under a single command. Are they a problem? Should we just leave the Jebusites alone and let them stay in the land of the inheritance? No, because after the Israelites came in and conquered Jericho and word spread, what happened? All the ites got together. All the ites consolidated and they came after Joshua. So keep in mind, they are the enemy. They are the enemy of God's people. Go to Joshua 15, 63. Now, in this section, we're seeing the breakup of Israel because each tribe, I promise y'all this is important, each tribe gets a different section, okay? So do you see what is the title of chapter 15? What's the title in your Bible of Joshua 15? Judah. Okay, so we're talking right now about the tribe of Judah. So it's in the land of Judah. So it says in verse, what did I say, that last one? 63? The people of Judah couldn't get rid of the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. The Jebusites stayed put, living alongside the people of Judah. They are still living there in Jerusalem. So we know that it was originally given to Judah, they could not get them out. They could not get them out of, of Jerusalem. So look at Joshua 18, 28. It then says, starting down in, I think, verse actually 21, it says that these are the cities of the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. So at some point, it's given over to Benjamin because look, as you go down, it says that the Jebusite city, that is Jerusalem, Gibeah and Kiriath Jermon, 14 cities with their villages. So at some point, the land was given to Benjamin, but yet they, they couldn't get them out. They never truly conquered them. Look at Judges 2. Um, I want you to, actually, let's just go to Judges 3. You don't need to see Judges 2. Judges 3, and it is, oh, it's in the section of 1 through 4. You know how, or 1 through Six, because the message doesn't give you exact verses, but it says they were there to test Israel and see whether they would obey God 
God's commands that were given to their parents through Moses. So it's saying God allowed some of the people to remain, right? He left them there. They had given up. They decided to settle amongst them. So God goes, okay, I'm going to leave some of them right there as a test to see if you'll stay true to me. But the people of Israel made themselves at home among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They married their daughters and gave their own daughters to their sons in marriage, and they worshiped their gods. Okay, so we know a few things. We know that they have been there a really long time. Somehow they have held on to Jerusalem through all of this time. We know that they were given to Judah. Somehow they're listed with Benjamin. We also know that they are the enemy of God. They came after God's people. They joined with all the ites. And we know they were a problem because now they have influenced the people of God with intermarriage. And now the Israelites have actually worshiped their gods in this time. Go to Judges 19. Ooh, y'all know this story. Look at the top. Look at the title of this. I've told y'all this story twice. Remember this one? Okay, this is about the Levite who was traveling and he went to get his concubine uh, and he was really trying hard to get her. So he took a really nice goat to the father and said, I want her back. And the father says, oh, y'all stay for a while. Y'all stay for a while. And they stay for a few days. And then he finally says, give me my woman and let's go. And when they set out to go back home, it says this. It says, I'll start in verse, I think it's verse 10. I can't really see. But this time the man wasn't willing to spend another night. He got things ready, left, and went as far as what? Jerusalem. Some of yours says Jebus or Jerusalem, maybe in parentheses, uh, with his pair of saddle donkeys, his concubine, and his servant. At Jebus, though, the day was nearly gone. And the servant said to his master, it's late. Let's go into this, what? Jebusite city, still a Jebusite city, and spend the night. But the master said, we're not going into a city of what? Aliens, foreigners, strangers, non-Israelites. Even now, they're still there and they are the enemy of God. They are strangers. Too bad the story didn't turn out well. He actually went to his brethren and they killed his concubine. Now in 2 Samuel 5, we're going to read something about them. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Are you hearing the sass? Okay, listen, David is no uh, stranger to smack talk. He met Goliath and he won. And it says, thinking David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is Jerusalem. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Okay, this is all irony, right? It's you, you need to it's um, he's being uh, sarcastic is what's happening. So the Jebusite city is Jerusalem. You need to understand Jerusalem. Okay, here is the city of David. This is what it looks like. This right here, okay? And it has got two valleys on either side of it, right? If you've been there, you've seen it. Here is the Kidron Valley, deep, deep valley at the time. 
Not quite as deep now because all of the destruction falls in the valley and the land raises, right? That's why they had to excavate to see part of the, the structure, the wall, the city wall of Jerusalem. So here's the city of David right on the tip. So there's the Kidron Valley. And on the left side of this is the Central Valley. And at the nose of it down here is another valley that cuts across out here. It is literally geographically protected on three sides. It is protected here, here, and at the nose. It is a natural um, fortification. The only place that it was at all approachable is on the north side coming in with the land. So where do you think the Jebusites would have built their stronghold? Right there, because they have to guard that section and it would have been walled, but it had natural protection. That is why nobody, so what they're saying is, good luck, David. We have been here forever. Like, ain't nobody getting in here. The blind and the lame could protect this place. And so David says, oh, really? How about blind and lame? How about we go, he is so brilliant. We're going to go through the water system because the spring was outside down, right? And so they literally sneak through. They find passage through the water system inside the walls of the city, and they are able to attack and conquer the Jebusites. And he he wins the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you ever go to Israel with me, we're going to go down in those uh, water pathways. Uh, yeah. And if you're claustrophobic, you need to take a pill before we go. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it is tight. When you see what all they went through, it's, it's unbelievable. At times, we would go through the first year, I learned my lesson. Because it is very tight and it is underground and there are some places you have to turn sideways to kind of get through. And when you're in a line of people and the beginning people are so amazed that they stop to take pictures. So the front of the line stops and the back of the line keeps moving. And at one point I found myself right in between underground and I about lost my stuff. And I so I'm like, move it. <laughs> Stop taking pictures! You know, and so I knew from that moment on that when we were going to be underground in tunnels, I need to be in the front, okay? But this is how he got in. It was brilliant. So when he says this about the blind and the lame not being allowed in the palace of David, they were just being sarcastic, okay? Because what we're going to learn later is, do you remember Mephibosheth? I brought him up last week. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, and he was what? Lame. And you're going to see the beautiful heart of David, because at one point we're going to watch as he brings him into the palace. Okay, so then it says that David then began to build his house. So look at verse 9. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. Okay? And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. He began to protect the city. He built it from the outside in. He fortified it. Okay. And then at one point he built his house. You're going to see that. So he will build his own house, his palace. And you're going to see that the king of Tyre begins to send him all kinds of supplies. Because when there is a new king in town, you have a decision to make. You are either going to be for him 
or you are going to be against him. David is a very famous king. He is a famous warrior. And the king of Tyre says, I think I can get more with honey. And so he sent him all kinds of supplies to build his home. But here's what you need to know about this. What is David doing? David's goal is to unify the nation of Israel. So what does he do? He goes and he says, I have to have basically my, um, my White House... My capital needs to be somewhere that is neutral. Because what are these tribes like? Very territorial, very competitive. Do you remember how hard Abner probably had to work to get the tribe of Benjamin to come under David? The tribe of Judah? And so David is so smart. Not only is it an amazing stronghold, it is neutral territory because neither Judah nor Benjamin ever conquered it. Neither one of them ever truly owned that piece of land. It was the Jebusites. So David goes in and he conquers an enemy that nobody could ever get out of there. And neither tribe has ever had it. It is neutral territory. It is in the center, basically the center of everything between Judah and the land of Benjamin. It is the perfect place. Now the rest of chapter 5 gives us context as to why David is doing this. What is the rest of that chapter about, starting in verse 17? We've dealt with wars. I'm not going to go back through these wars. But twice the Philistines have been coming after David. This is simultaneously. Okay, just because it's written after doesn't mean now he's in Jerusalem, now they're coming after him. No, they've been coming after him. Therefore, what does he need? A stronghold. So what motivated him to find the best stronghold? The fact that the Philistines are dead set in coming after David. Why? Why are the Philistines so mad at David? Why are they so determined that they keep coming, keep coming, keep coming after David? Oh, past Goliath, but think. Y'all, he lived amongst them. Do you not remember? He was a spy, basically. He had convinced the king that he was on their side completely. And the whole time he's been raiding all the ites and sending all the gifts to Judah. The whole time he's been working an angle. Achish believed in him so much, he put him in the army. And the commanders eventually turned him away. So what does he know? He knows everything about them. He knows where they find their resources. He knows how they fight. He knows every commander. He knows their names, their faces. I'm going to tell you what, he is one serious enemy of the Philistines and they are after him. Therefore, this is a motivation as to why David, and they want to come after him quick before he has a really awesome stronghold, which now what? He does. So now he has Jerusalem. And good luck, right, conquering that one. Then we go into chapter 6. Is this making sense to you, the story itself? Okay. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Conquer Jerusalem. Do you kill all those people? Do they just come under your leadership? Do they leave? Well, you, you go in there to kill them. Um, I'm sure survivors were just uh, slaves. Um, and I'm sure some ran. Because in almost every war, you hear about whoever's losing, hightails it and is chased. And in almost every war, there's some survivor that made it because we've seen these spies come back and try to find their place of power. So I think it's all the above. But the majority of the time, right, if you 
you could either submit or fight to your death. And I'm sure, you know, once you're conquered, you're the slaves of, of the conquering party. So, but most of them for honor would fight to the death, right? That's what kills me about Saul. I just think Saul is, that part is just not taught well because people always talk about Saul's suicide as if he gave up and just fell on the sword because he's so dramatic. No, Saul died because he was determined to die with honor. And so in his pride, he went out his own way without having, because it was a shame, honor culture, and he was going to go out with honor. And he felt it was an act of bravery, of honor. The sad part is, is that for his own image and honor, he would bow the knee on a sword, but he would never humbly bow the knee before God. And that's the problem. He always would save face. He always cared about his image. And you're going to see in this next chapter, David didn't give a rip about his image when it came to God, right? Because we're going to see him in a minute dancing down the streets. He does. He's like, I will embarrass myself to death for him. And Saul could never truly grasp that. Um, chapter 6, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, and who sits enthroned in the cherubim. All right, let's break this down. The ark of God, what is it? The ark of the covenant. All right. Inside, you find it, it basically, the ark literally means box or chest, all right? And it is three by nine long. How many of you pictured it giant in your head? As a kid, I used to, did you? I used to picture this ginormous thing. It's three by nine long. It's two by three wide and two by three tall. And it is made out of acacia wood, which is known for the fact that it does not decay, it hardens. Um, and so the acacia wood is a picture of the humanity of Christ because the Holy One saw no decay. It also, in the desert, the acacia wood is much like our mesquite tree, and it produces thorns to protect itself. And so there you also have the picture of, in humanity, right? His body saw no decay, and he wore the crown of thorns. There's all kinds of beautiful symbolism. But it was made out of wood, but it was covered in gold, which represents what? Deity. So he was the God-man. It was topped um, by what they call the mercy seat. It was all gold, one piece, hammered out. Okay? And so, yes, I can't imagine. And it had two cherubim that were facing each other whose wings were stretched out, looking down over the mercy seat. Inside of it was, we talked about, it's the Ten Commandments or the law or the marriage contract, as I always teach it to you guys. That is in there. Actually, both copies. Don't think he ran out of room and had to put it on two copies. Anytime there was a contract, you would have a copy and I would have a copy because we agreed. They're in there. Inside of there was also the jar of manna, symbolizing God's ability to provide for his people in the desert and the budding rod of Aaron symbolizing God's choice of the priestly line, the high priestly line. So that was in there. The mercy seat on top of it covered it completely, no edge, covered it completely. And on the day of atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice and he would take the blood beyond the veil. It was, it was um, put
put in the most holy place, the holy of holies beyond the veil. And the high priest would walk in and he would sprinkle the blood of that lamb seven times on the mercy seat. Seven meaning completion. And so literally the glory of God, the presence of God lived above the Ark of the Covenant, peering down into what was in the Ark. But what he would see, so he saw a contract, a conditional contract, a marriage contract that both people agreed to. But on top of it, what would he see? The blood of the Lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so he would see that when he looked down. This was the most prized piece of furniture in that tabernacle. This was the ark. And it says in here, on that it says that it was called by the name the Lord of hosts. Love it. The Lord of the angel armies. If you want a good story about the angel armies, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha and his servant are in a pickle. Uh, They are surrounded by the Syrian army and the servant is freaking out. And Elisha is like, dude, those with us are greater than those with them. We have more. And he's like, what are you talking about? And Elisha prays that the servant's eyes will be opened. And when God opens the servant's eyes, he looks and the angel armies have surrounded the Syrians. And he's like, oh, I get you. And so they talked about God as the Lord of or the commander of the angel armies representing his power. I've taught you, I don't know how many times, right, that in the story of Hannah, that in the Bible, the Lord of the angel armies or the Lord of hosts is mentioned 235 times. And Hannah, I believe, is the first one to mention it when she's praying. She is reminding herself that she has a God that opens his mouth and light comes out going 180,000 miles a second. And the fact that literally he can speak and every atom and molecule can line up in a line like an army and do exactly what he tells them to do, that he can make something from nothing, right? I've taught you all that Hebrew, you know it. What is it? To make something from nothing. Barah. A barah makes something from nothing. I've taught you all this how many times, right? So listen, this last weekend, I was in uh, Texas with Anita Renfro, who's one of the best Christian comedians. Uh, She's hilarious. So she's heard me teach about Hannah a jillion times. And so later on, she came up to me. She goes, Shanna, I'm about to give you some good stuff. And I'm like, okay, what is it? She goes, I'm going to make you a lot funnier. And I'm like, well, good. I need to be. And she said, because you're missing a part that is totally needed. When you teach them the word barah and you say, and a barah makes something from nothing. She goes, then go, you raise me up. So I, and I, so I, I tried it the next time and I, it was a hit. I'm telling you, I'm like, Anita, you gave me some good stuff. So he is the Lord of the angel armies living, uh, living above this Ark of the Covenant. And it said that they brought it from Baal, Judah. All right. I want to know where it's been. Don't you? When's the last time we noticed it? When's the last time you remember the ark in our story? When do you remember it was Saul? Are you sure you're not talking before that? I mean, it was, the, it was around, but not mentioned a whole lot with Saul. When's the last great story you remember about it? I'm telling y'all, y'all better be glad I don't have to send home grade reports. Huh? Mm-mm. 
Okay, do you remember Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? All right, Eli was the high priest. Hophni and Phinehas were his sons, and they were bad news. They were uh, corrupting the offerings of God. And do you remember the fact that they were fighting the Philistines, and they were getting their tails kicked, and they decided, oh, what is the problem? I know what the problem is. We left God in the tent. And so they decided to go back because for sure God's in that box. So we're going to go get the box and just take it along with us in battle. We're going to treat the holy living God like the pagans treat their gods. We're just going to put them in our pocket and take him with us. And so they went and took the ark. And what happened? They got their butts kicked, y'all. That's what happened. And the Philistines stole the ark. Hophni and Phinehas died. Eli heard about it, fell backwards, broke his neck. And then comes the funniest, one of the funniest stories in the Old Testament, right? Because the ark goes to every Philistine city. And when it does, they not only have a rat problem, it says that they get tumors of the groin. Do you remember that? The whole description of hemorrhoids and all that jazz? Okay. And then, and this is important because this is all coming back. This is why you have to remember. So they decide the last city is like, okay. They call in the elders. We're going to have an elders meeting, board meeting right here. What are we going to do with this ark? we got to get it out of here. So they decide that they're going to put it on a new cart. Those words are important in our story. Uh, they're going to put this on a new cart because they're not going to chance it breaking down. And they're going to take two mama cows who have just given birth to calves, who would never walk away from their calves, and who have never been yoked together, and they're going to put that yoke on. Oh, and don't forget, they can't send it back empty-handed because the God of Israel likes offerings they've heard. So they're going to make golden offerings. They're going to make golden images of their tumors. I wonder what the Israelites thought when they saw those. Like, what is that? But So the cows, they're like, if... All of this is happening because of Israel's God. Then these cows are going to take it back because they're going to walk away from their babies. Like that is miraculous. Well, you remember how sad the story was? The two mamas walk away from the babies. They never look to the right or to the left. And they're lowing. They're crying the whole way. I know you remember. They're crying the whole way. And then when they get there, they're slaughtered. Right? Which should have never been because it should have never been female cows given as a burnt offering. So remember the fact that it is on a new cart. When it gets there, do you re- it landed at Bet Shemesh. Do you remember the beauty of that place? Do you remember what I told you about that? Why it was important? God allowed the cart to go there, the Ark of the Covenant to go there, because do you remember what family was given the land of Bet Shemesh? It was a Levitical family, so from the tribe of Levi, and their name was Kohath. And if you look, let me see if I wrote down the reference. If you look in, yes, I did, Numbers 4.15, just write that down, look at it later. Um, The family of Kohath were the ones in Numbers that were given the responsibility of caring for all the furniture in the tabernacle and carrying it, like caring for it and carrying it. So remember, the tabernacle was something that moved with the people. They would take it down. They had to cover up things exactly like God said, and they had to transport it. And when they did, 
It was the family of Kohath that did it. And those are the people that were given the area of Beth Shemesh. So it was the perfect place for it to go. How did they handle it? Not good. Because if you remember, it says that they either, some scholars think they uncovered it and just looked at it. Others think they tried to look in it. And when that happened, depending on your Bible, what it says, uh, a lot of people died. So the sad part of that story is the Philistines didn't want the ark and neither did God's people. So where did it go? They took it to a place called Kiriath Jermon. Another name for that is Baal Judah. Okay, in your place. So that's where it's been. It's been in Abinadab's house for about 20 years. What does that say about the reign of Saul? How important was Jehovah worship? Okay, it says, verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a what? Now do you see why I told you that story? On a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, and I call him Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Well, what is the problem? They are transporting the ark on a cart against God's command. The ark was designed to be carried and was only to be carried by the Levites, the family of who? Kohath, let me read it to you, Numbers 4.15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. So even this family that was designated to carry these holy things of God were instructed to carry it. Do not touch it. Do it exactly like I said. They had the poles, right? These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And they go on. It was designed to be carried. There were four gold rings, one on each corner, and there were wooden poles covered in gold. And it was supposed to be carried. I want you to think about this, okay? This is the law. This is the law. The law was a burden, it was. It was a burden that needed that was going to be carried. And it was the responsibility of the Levites to carry it. But it was never to be put on a cart and sent because the law, that covenant, it has weight. And the beauty is, as I've described to you on the mercy seat, the fact that that blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The beauty is at some point, what happened to the law? It's as if Jesus picked that up, carried that burden, what? Completely off. He fulfilled it, the whole thing. And so everything about this was designed as a picture, right? Symbolically of what is going to, the ark is Jesus. He is the one who will fulfill all the law. He is the blood. He is the mercy seat. If you go to the Gospels, you will see that when they actually went in the tomb and they saw the two angels, one was sitting at the head, one was sitting at the foot. That is the mercy seat. 
And so it is all beautiful. And so they were instructed to handle it a certain way. Why? It is holy. He's holy. And he gave them instructions and they needed to understand that. In Numbers chapter 4, I read you verse uh, 15, but it's in chapter 4 if you want to read. So let me ask you, where did they get the idea of putting it on a new cart? The Philistines. Really? Philistines. 1 Samuel 6, if you want to know where that is. Israel was to take their example from God's word, not the innovations of the Philistines. Wow, I put. Aren't they just falling back into old habits? What is their habit? If, if I have taught you anything in, in Samuels, what is the habit of these people? Okay. Yeah. Right. And they, they desire to worship God, but they always seem to want to do it on whose terms? Theirs. They worship the one true living God but they always try to worship the one true living God like the pagans worship their God because they want control. They want to be in control. Think about this. We also saw this with the golden calf. When they came out of Egypt, trust me, they were worshiping Yahweh. That's who they were thinking. That's who they were worshiping. But how did they do it? Like the Egyptians. They made a golden statue. They made a golden image representing God. And that was direct, directly in conflict of what he said. Do not put me in an image, right? Don't do it. And so we, we constantly see them doing that. And by the way, do you remember? I thought this was, I forgot to tell you this. When the ark was stolen, when they treated the ark as an image and it was stolen and they're like, oh my gosh, God is stolen. He's no longer, we no longer have the presence of God, right? They took him and put him where? Do you remember that? In the temple of Dagon. Do you remember what happened there? The next morning, the Philistines came and the image of Dagon was on its face in front of the ark. Listen, God does not need us. He is God. The point he's trying to make is I am God. You are not. But I love you. I am fully trustworthy. If you will just trust me, and follow me, I am not something you put in your cart and drag along with you. This is the entire picture of what is happening. Surely David prayed for God's blessing on this big production. Don't you know he did? I mean, y'all, this is a big deal. 30,000 people are present for this parade. This is big. He's excited. Y'all, they're celebrating. They're singing. They're playing music. This is the best day ever. Why? David has the best intentions on the planet. He wants the ark of God back in the capital city because he wants God back in the center of attention where he should be. He wants people to come and worship him there because Saul had put him in a room over there for 20 years. And David's like, no, we're putting God front and center. And we're like, yay. And they're celebrating. And God, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, but the problem is he prayed for God's blessing, but he didn't ask for direction. That's the problem. He planned the whole wonderful event and he just wanted God's blessing, not his opinion. This was a good thing done a really wrong way. 
I think you could sit and probably journal about that. I can't think of every example in your life or in your church, but I can tell you, I've had a lot of good intentions at time, right? But I didn't follow through with obedience. And that is the deal. I think there's all kinds of application right here. I think how many times do we try to do new, innovative things? Oh, by the way, this is so interesting. Yuza, the name, means strength. Ahio means friendly. And then you have this efficiency of the new cart. This should have been a great day. Your two leaders are strength and friendly. I mean, don't you want your leaders to be have that? Have great strength and be friendly? And you have this new innovation that's going to get things out there to the world? But what's the problem? That's all you. What does God want? What are his instructions? It takes me always back. I'll just, I'll always think it's the best thing I ever did as a young person. Henry Blackaby's experiencing God. Because he got it right. God is at work. We don't come up with the production and start the whole thing and just ask God for his blessing. No. We say, God, you're always working. Where are you working? Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. And let me be a part of it. If I can be a part of it, Lord, put me there and let me be a part of it. Because when, I always view it as Finding Nemo, the East Australian current. Did you all see that? Do you remember when Nemo gets into the East Australian current? It's like, and they're kicked back. I'm going to tell you what, when you wait on the Spirit of God and you step into what He's doing, I don't know if you've ever experienced, but it blows your mind. You're like, how did that even work? I don't even know how that worked. But I'm so glad that I got to be a part of it because we can be strong and friendly and have a new cart and have this and plan and make this production and make all these plans. And if God is not in it, it's a big fat mistake because I'm going to tell you, they were celebrating one minute and then all heck broke loose. Last thing, this was quite a production. Judging from the importance of the occasion and all the instruments mentioned, this was quite a production. The atmosphere was joyful, exciting, and engaging. The problem was none of it pleased God because it was disobedience. Their feelings or emotions were not indicators of God's pleasure. Be careful following feelings. They can lie. Just because there's a lot of hoopla, just because there's great emotion in feeling does not be, mean there's great obedience or doesn't mean that God is in it. We can make a lot of noise. David has a good heart, good intentions, yet his actions were wrong. Be careful with confusing what pleases us with what pleases God. You're going to learn. We'll talk about this again next week. You're going to learn this event happened on the threshing floor. This bad event that is about to happen, that is so cool. Because the threshing floor is designed to divide things. And God is about to do some dividing of the truth right there on the threshing floor. And he is basically going to show them, um, y'all need to calm down and listen to me. I'm about to stop this event in its tracks because I am God and you are not. I am holy. Do not forget who I am. And can I just say, there's a lot of us in this, this next section. If we forget the holiness of God, 
we will never truly appreciate grace. If you diminish his holiness, you will not fully grasp the beauty of grace because a holy God came down and became man to pay our debt. Do not diminish that. Sometimes in, in our New Testament world, I think we become like these two. Remember, that was in their house for 20 years. They got real accustomed to it. And I think they got a little lax. I think we can do that, especially if God has been in our life forever. I think we can go two different ways. Sometimes we can downgrade him and just buddy, friend, all of that. And then in some ways we can think he's triting off a little mermaid that's constantly wanting to strike us dead with everything. He's both. He is absolutely holy. We cannot look upon the face of God and live. And so what did he do in his great love? He sent Jesus, God in the flesh. He was the mercy seat. He paid our debt. And so I don't know about you, but I constantly live this of who's in control. I fight with him all the time for control. And why? I don't know why I do that, right? It's our flesh. I'll give you one thing to ask yourself. This is just practical takeaway. It's helping me in my life, so I'm gonna give it to you. When you are in a situation, ask yourself, am I in my business, my neighbor's business, or God's business, right? Is this something like, because really and truly, I mean, I'm not saying I can control myself because I can't, but the only option I have for control is what? Me. I cannot control my neighbor and I cannot control God. I'm some, if I look at a situation, I'll be like, because I want to help or I want to get involved or I want to do something. I'm like, okay, Shannon, is that your business? No. That is your neighbor's business. They did not invite you in that business. Don't worry about that. Don't carry their burden. That's not your problem. That's very hard sometimes when you're a mom. That is not my business. That's your problem, and I'm going to let you carry it. I'm sorry about that. I know it's tough. I have faith in you. I know you'll, I know you'll figure it out. But not jump in and carry your neighbors, whoever that is, their burdens. We get burdened down by doing that. It's none of our business unless we're asked. And then how many times do we get in God's business? <laughs> I'm constantly in God's business, right? And so we need to realize that God is God and we are not because we're control freaks. And all of the Samuels are about control. Who's going to have control? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for the joy of going through your scriptures. Lord, I just thank you for that, that we have the freedom and privilege to literally study together your word and to understand it and to understand ourselves in the pages and to see that, Lord, we are still in the same patterns as the Israelites. We are constantly fighting for control. We are constantly living our lives, forgetting you and going back and pulling you in our cart. And so, God, I pray that we would learn that really what you want is a relationship with us to sit in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will bear fruit. He will. So God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have in store and that we will be willing to follow you. I love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. 
be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.